0: Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Big Time Talker Podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live and worldwide from Washington, D.C. I'm Burke Allen, and the show is a service of our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. Hey, if you're a a meeting planner or you're a a keynote speaker, get together on SpeakerMatch.com. If you're a music fan, you're going to love our conversation today with my old friend Paul Abraham. Paul spent the better part of three decades on the road with some of the biggest names in the music industry. Bad Company, the Marshall Tucker Band, 38 Special, the fabulous Thunderbirds, Michael Peterson, uh, Billy Ray Cyrus, and the Leonard Skinner Band. And he joins me from Mississippi in the Delta. Paul Abraham, welcome to the show. Hey, Rick. How you doing? The The book, the Gospel According to Abraham, was, was there a thought as you were out doing this for a living that, you know, someday I got to write a book about all these stories, these amazing things that happen. Well,
1: people kept telling me that, you know, I'd come home off the road and I'd, 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 tell a story about, you know, this and that, something that happened that was crazy. Um, and they kept saying, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. And I'm like, man, I don't have a clue how to write a book. Uh, basically what I did is I, I just, you know, I started writing down some of these stories and then uh it got to the point where um you know I just I would read over and I'm like, man, nobody wants to read that stuff. And then I just I I set it aside for three or four years and picked it back up. Um contacted well I tell you what I did. I went on Facebook one morning, Facebook one morning and um and I just asked for for help, you know, I just said, "Look, I've got these these stories. I've got a lot more in my head. I need to either put them down on paper, and and uh, I, you know, I I need either a, a ghostwriter or somebody to help me, you know, do what I'm doing." Right. And um, before the day was out, I got a, a a a message back from a publisher, and she told me that she'd like to read what I had. I only had like, I think maybe seventy pages at the time. And she said, uh, "Could you send me what you got?" Which I did. And she said, "I'll get back with you in four or five days." And the next morning, I had a, a message already in my in my box. And she said that uh, she had read ten pages and she was completely enthralled. And 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 at that time, Love I that. didn't know what in, I didn't even know what enthralled meant. <laughs> 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 but but. Uh, uh, she, she published a book for me. Um, it's done pretty well. I've, I, I mean, you know, it's not like it's a, a, a chart topper or anything like that, but, uh, I don't know. One of these days you never can tell. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll get picked up again. Never can tell.
0: Hey, how does someone, um, get into your line of work or, or for you specifically, what was it that that led you to becoming a tour manager and eventually doing it for a bunch of the biggest names in the music industry in the seventies, eighties, and nineties?
1: Well, not so much um, the tour manager part of it. I mean, the music, the touring musician part of it. Right. My love, my love for that and the promotion part of it came from my first concert, which was uh, the Beatles. Wow! I saw the Beatles in Memphis in uh, nineteen. Uh, uh, 66 and, um, uh, it pretty much blew me away. My father was in the radio business. Okay. He, uh, he, uh, he, he had, he had a, um, ad rep in Memphis that told, told him the Beatles were coming and would he like some tickets? And he said, sure. So my father bought the whole 12th row, I think from the right aisle all the way over to the wall in the, in the Mid-South Coliseum and me and a bunch of my friends went, we had, I mean, it was just incredible. Uh, in my book, I actually have a picture that was taken from the back of the stage out over the stage with the Beatles on the stage and out into the audience. And I can pick myself out of the audience from exactly where I was sitting.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: And I tell you it's really kind of funny because I mean, if you look real close, you'll see a dark-headed guy that had a real dark tan, which you know it was uh, summertime. <laughs> and in the, in the, in the, in, the, in the Mississippi Delta, you either have a tan or you're staying indoors all the time, you know. So, but anyway, that's where that's where my love for for that part of the music business started. I, I played music. Uh, I was in the high school band actually uh, in the fifth, start in the fifth grade and all the way through my senior year.
0: And you still play today, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I
1: piddle around. I mean, I've (laughs) I've been putting my, uh, a few songs on Facebook, you know, just for the heck of it. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not a great guitar player. My, my singing came from, well, from my dad, to tell you the truth. I, today is his birthday, January 22nd. Wow. And, um, and uh, he uh, he would walk around the house singing. He had the most beautiful tenor voice you had ever heard. And he played in a uh, he was in a group called the Leland Airs, which basically they were a men's uh, choral group, and and they were really really good. And and uh, one of the songs my dad would sing was uh, uh, "You'll Never Walk Alone."
0: Oh, what a great song!
1: Uh, so I figured that might be my next one. I'm going to try to work that one up here before the day's out and see if I can put it up, but nice I've been doing that mom. a lot. You know, it's been kind of fun doing it.
0: Hey, uh, you talked about seeing the Beatles as a kid, you know, in, in Memphis, mm-hmm. how far outside Memphis did, did you grow up?
1: Uh, well, the, 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 Mississippi Delta as myth has it starts in the lobby of the Peabody hotel.
0: That's right. By the ducks.
1: That's right, and it goes from there all the way to Catfish Row, which is right outside of Vicksburg. And basically, uh, I lived, I smack dab in the middle, I guess you'd say, right between. Uh, I was about one hundred and thirty miles from Memphis, and uh, probably, oh, I think maybe ninety miles from uh, from Vicksburg. So, I, I had I had the the run of it, you know we. Mississippi Delta was, it was a, a magical place back then and it still is today.
0: And that's where you, uh, you came back to after all this time on the road. I wonder, and the reason I ask about Memphis is how much, uh, growing up in the sixties in the middle of, of all that incredible music out of Memphis and out of the Delta, how much that influenced what became your career path? Man,
1: look, <laughs> that's so funny. You had mentioned that, uh, um my friend gave me a book for for christmas called Memphis Rocks and it's basically a concert history from 1955 to 1985 and i mean those were the years you know Th- those were the years and and the influence and the and the i guess I, the closeness of being you know near memphis and getting to to witness all this music. I mean, it, it, everybody came to Memphis. Sure. So, so um that, you know, that that probably it, it it was a a big deal for all of us Delta boys or and girls of course.
0: Paul Abraham is our guest today, legendary concert tour manager for some of the biggest acts in the world and one heck of a nice guy who I have seen uh, backstage have to navigate some pretty sticky situations down through the years. The book is The Gospel, According to Abraham, From Delta Boy to Tour Manager, available at all the online platforms. Uh, Tell me about your your first encounter with a quote-unquote famous musician.
1: Oh, wow. Um, Okay. Uh, I mean, I had met. Bo Diddley and and I had met a bunch of of, of uh, blues artists, you know, back through the years. But I guess um, the first famous person I met and and he to be to be honest with you he wasn't even that famous then, but was Ronnie Van Zandt. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we we brought him to uh, Cleveland, Mississippi which it, it has a a college here, and, and it's where I live now, as a matter of fact. Have a, there's a college town here, a Delta State College, a university now. And there's an actual, within six blocks of my house, there's a Grammy Museum. And, wow. and oh yeah, yeah, I mean, they recognized way back when what what the Delta music meant to people. But uh, but getting on back to you know to people all over the world, I should have said. Well, getting back to to meeting Ronnie, um, it was right here in in, in Cleveland, and um, we were putting them on at the Bolivar County Expo Center, just a, basically a big old barn, and uh, they had rodeos in there, and you know other things, car shows, things like that, and. Uh, um, I met him that day and he was just so down to earth and, and, uh, later found out that he and I shared a birthday. So, um, you know, I, I guess meeting him, um, would have been the first big name artist that I met. And, and then of course the rest of the band.
0: (laughs) And for folks that haven't read the book yet, uh, and hopefully they will where in the trajectory of Leonard Skinner's career was this, what, what year, and, and what were the circumstances where you were involved in bringing them to your hometown?
1: Um, it was in 1974. Um, my, I was telling you earlier, my father had a radio station. My brother and I decided we wanted to, to try to, to try to do some shows. I was, uh, in, um, uh, uh, Atlanta I was living in Atlanta in old seventy two through maybe 73, 74. Just went over there to party. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but but uh, I saw Skinnerd at Finocchio's. It's an old, you know. It's a little. It's a nothing of a nightclub. I, I mean, basically, I do. The only thing I really remember about it was it had a tiny stage, and a, a balcony. And I was in the balcony and I was looking down on this band and, and I'm watching, I'm watching them just kill everybody in there, man. They were just incredible. And, um, a few days later I saw a a friend of mine, um, turn me on to their first album and I'm like, Oh my God, these guys are fantastic. So I, I, I got in touch with, with my brother Carl who was still in the Delta and I said, you know, I just heard this new band, and uh, maybe we want to try to bring them over there. You know, maybe we could bring them, you know, somewhere. We will find somewhere to put them and and uh, see if we can get a crowd. Well, um, sure enough, we got a, a great crowd. Charged five dollars a ticket. <laughs> wow. And that's and, and that's five dollars, like, <laughs> like, like like you say it in the south. That's right. <laughs> but but. Um, uh, I, I think we had, you know, thirty five hundred, maybe four thousand people there, and and uh, it is still talked about today. It's funny thing is, is my my personal physician. He, uh, when I first met him back oh, six or eight months ago, um, uh, I told him, you know, who I was and what I had done, and he said, you know what. I was going to school at, 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 state at that time. And I remember we skipped class so we could come over here and go to that show that night. And I'm like, is that right? But yeah, um, it, it was, um, uh, it, it was a fun time, man. I tell you what, we had a ball. We, we, we bought, brought Skinner there. We brought, uh, Freddie King, uh, and then, uh, two of the, uh, uh, Skinner bands, label mates, most Jones, um, and, oh, my gosh, I can't think of the other name of the band right now. It'll come to me later. I, I go through these these bouts.
0: So I hope you understand. <laughs> well, listen, you've, you've done a thing or two in your life. It's understandable. Uh, Paul yeah. Abraham's book is The Gospel According to Abraham, and it uh, talks about all his many years in the music business as a uh, tour manager. And, and in the beginning as a promoter, and, and I wonder in, in you know the promotion business, uh, you know, that that's a high-risk game. You can either yeah, you know sure. make a lot of money or lose a lot of money. Leonard sure. Skinner bringing them in in nineteen seventy four was was big for you, um, you know, financially and also you know the legend lives on even with your your personal physician. Do you remember the biggest loser that you ever had in the in the the promoter <laughs> game where you, you really lost your shirt and then some?
1: Oh yeah, tell me it was it was in the same building, uh, probably. Oh, five, six months later, Wet Willie, okay? And Wet Willie was known. Sure. But uh, basically, I, I guess I need to go back through the we, the way we did this building. They didn't have a stage set up, and we didn't want to build a stage. So I've got a guy, a buddy that's a farmer, and he brought in his two big uh, Semi truck flatbed trailers, and we stuck them side by side, and they were a beautiful forty by twenty foot stage, excellent. But um, Jimmy Jimmy Hall came in there and took a look at the stages and said, "No, nah, I don't want to play here." And it, literally, they were in town and prepared to play the show. Oh no! And didn't and wouldn't play because of the stage that Ronnie and them had just played on five or six months earlier. And Freddie King and and others, you know, when 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 you're a promoter in a small town like this, you you want to find the cheapest way to do things, you you know. You want to put on a show, but by the same token, you you don't want to kill yourself because it's. They say if you want to make a million dollars in the music business, you start with two million. You know, that's right. That's right. So so uh, it it, it was, uh, yeah. uh, Willie opened our eyes.
0: So the band that said "keep on smiling" had you doing the exact opposite. Yeah,
1: that night. <laughs> yeah buddy. I tell you what, I, I don't remember what the nut was, but you know, of, of course, we had to return a lot of tickets, and then they, of course, had to return their deposits. So, but uh, it, it was a it was definitely eye opening.
0: As they say, that makes for a bad day for everybody. Oh Lord. No doubt. Hey, no speaking doubt bad about days, less than three years after you brought Leonard Skinner to to your town, mm-hmm. uh, a plane went down, not too awful far from there, and uh, effectively, you know, certainly ended the life of some of the members and and ended their career for quite some time. Do you remember yeah. where you were uh, and the circumstances behind why you were there when you heard the the plane went down with Leonard Skinner?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly where I was, and uh, the federal government knew where I was too.
0: <laughs> Why don't I, you share that with our listeners, sir? <laughs> well, we
1: uh, um, probably well early seventy five. Um, I I got involved with some people that were up to some some bad things, and they coerced me into into accompanying them. Uh, to Memphis again, here we go to Memphis. And, um, it was, uh, it was a quote unquote drug deal gone bad. And I ended up in federal jail for three and a half years, three years and four months. Wow. Yeah. So on the seventh, I mean, on the, um, um, October twentieth, nineteen seventy seven. I was in federal correctional institution in Memphis, Tennessee, (laughs) awaiting awaiting release. You know, to my to my home back in Mississippi, and um, you know, I don't. I don't really. I really don't mind talking about about uh, my inequities. I guess you'd say the things that I've, I've. made mistakes on in my life, which are probably numerous, you know, even today. But, uh, that, that was the biggest mistake and the most regrettable because it not only did it, it send me off in, in a place where I didn't really want to be. My brother kept, kept in contact with the band. And, you know, I did, I matter of fact, I've got a note that Ronnie, Wrote me and the and the guys all you know uh, signed it while I was still in jail, and I carried that note around with me till it was tattered and dog eared and everything else, and it's it, it brought me through some hard times. But uh, you know, it, it was during that time that the band was just they were just going through the roof.
0: Oh, on top and, of the world, yeah,
1: yeah. And I was missing that because I was I was stupid, you know. Did some dumb, dumb things. But, you know, that's all gone, all behind us. Uh, ten years after that was said and done, and ten years after the plane crash, Gary Rosington decided he wanted to hire me to, to, go to, to go to work with him on the tribute tour, which was incredible. It was the most incredible tour, you know, the, even the, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it for ten years that, I, I mean, it was just, it was wonderful.
0: You know, and it, it was. it's along that time frame that our paths first crossed. I remember I, I was doing radio as an afternoon guy, program director in Charleston, West Virginia, when that reunion tour came through, uh, and we, you know, did a backstage meet and greet with with the band, uh, who were all incredibly gracious. And um, Paul, you probably saw this all over the country, but when the reunited Leonard Skinnerd Hit the stage that night at the Charleston Civic Center Coliseum it it must be it was like the second coming of Jesus Christ in West Virginia. It was the most deafening roar I've ever seen. yeah uh, you know it was the most um, uh, sort of jubilation and warmth towards an artist I've ever seen in my entire career and and you and those guys must have seen that night after night after night
1: That's what I thrived on. I mean literally that's what I thrived on. I mean I I loved standing over on in the wings and watching you know where I could see the band and then watching out into the audience and just seeing the the look and the joy on the faces of those people out there was it was the most fulfilling thing I've you know I've ever been part of. And especially the tribute tour part of it. I mean, the, the first 32 shows, which basically when I hired on, that's what I thought I was going to be working 32 shows. And then 10 years later, you know, we're still doing it. Sure. But, but, um, it was, uh, it was, it was just incredible. I mean, just to be able to go and witness, witness that every night. And, 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 you know, we had opening acts like the Doobie brothers and, Hank Williams jr. And, um, Oh my God, 38, you know, any number of, of opening acts down through the years that, whose music I loved and to be able to go out there every night and listen, listen to all that music. And then to end it every night with, uh, with, uh, Skinner just burning the stage down every night.
0: And there were so many, you know, emotional high points in, in that show. Of course, when, when, uh, Ronnie's father would come out, Lacey, and, and talk to the crowd. Yeah. And, and people just loved him up. Um, I remember one of the the original road crew members, Gene Odom, was there and signing copies yep. of his book uh, yep. at the autograph table. And, of course, the the show, uh, the way it ended every night, uh, for folks that didn't see that tour, uh, it was pretty special. Yeah.
1: Um, with Ron, with uh, Johnny not doing the vocal, is that yes, what you're talking about? that's right. Yeah. Well let me let me add to that a little bit. Yeah, every night, um Craig Reed, one of the survivors of the plane crash, he would take a microphone stand out there. Well he would he would uh once well he would take the microphone stand out there with Ronnie's hat on it. And that's that was basically and then they would do Freebird instrumentally. Uh, we were in Sacramento. California. Uh, This was in 90, probably 91. You know, I'll be honest with you. It may have been, it may have been sooner than that, but, um, and Johnny probably could tell you a little bit better than me, but um, Leon and I were out walking on the outside of the Arco arena. And um, Leon looks over and he sees this little bird that's entwined in fishing line and he reaches over and picks this little bird up and he really and truly he he for five ten minutes he's sitting there unwinding this this fishing line off of this poor little bird and and the whole time he and I are talking I said you think the bird's gonna be okay he said oh yeah he'll be fine so when he got him all out completely unwound he he set the little bird down on the on the uh, pavement and for a minute the, the bird didn't fly away and it kind of you know I, i'm like oh my gosh that little bird kept looking up at leon and then he flew off and leon said oh my lord <laughs> you know and i'm like i'm like what's that leon he said that's he said that's an omen he said i gotta go see johnny <laughs> so, wow So he went to see Johnny and and Johnny for the very first time that night sang Freebird. And it was, man, I tell you what, it was moving. It really, really was.
0: Paul Abraham is our guest. We're talking about uh, his days with Leonard Skinner. And of course he served time on the road with many, many artists, including Leonard Skinner in their reunion tour. Um, how does one go about becoming a tour manager because this is a a pretty amazing part of your your life story to go from being uh locked up in a federal penitentiary to being on the road with some of the biggest musical acts of all time uh, walk us through how that happens well uh,
1: first of all um i when when i got out of jail <laughs> um my my wife and i i, I got married and my wife and I moved to Colorado. We loved living in the Rockies, so we moved out there, and we found us a beautiful home, and, you know, that's surrounded by national forests, and we raised golden retrievers and just had a wonderful life. And and one day I was talking to uh, Billy Powell on the phone, and he said, well, Paul, you know that Gary and Dale live up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming right now. And I said, oh, you're kidding. And so... uh. I figured, you know, and Sandy, Sandy, my wife, and I decided we wanted to go up there anyway, and we had already been up there, I think, maybe once or twice because it's just such a beautiful place. Sure. So, so um, we went up there, and um, I looked in the phone book, and sure enough, Gary Rossington.
0: <laughs> wow. And so, in the phone so book.
1: I, yeah, in the phone book. So I, so I, I called. And Dale answered the phone, and I explained to Dale who I was. And she said, well, you, Gary, he's not here right now. He's at the grocery store. And I said, I, well, there's only one grocery store in town, so I'll go see if I can see him. Well, sure enough, i, I walk in the grocery store, and I find Gary out back by the, by the meat market. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, um... And he turned around and looked at me. I mean, you know, he said, Oh my God. And the first thing out of his mouth was, where's your brother? You know, because everywhere we went, when, you know, at that time, my brother and I would be at all these shows together. And then all of a sudden I disappeared. But anyway, um, we talked for a minute and he said, man, you got to come out. And so, um, went out to the house and we had already booked a hotel room. He said, man, you don't need that hotel. Just stay here with, you know, stay here with us. So we spent probably a week with Dale and Gary that time. And then, you know, we'd go back home. And then a few weeks later, we'd, we'd Gary and I would go camping or fishing or, you know, we'd find something to do up there. And I, I would, I it was always just an excuse for me to go back up there to tell you the truth. Sure. So, um, one of the times we went Gary had Gary and Dale had put the band the rossington band together which were they were really really good and but it was it was kind of popish you know yeah but it was really really good stuff and they went out and uh, did some shows I think they did one show in Texas and uh, um they opened for boss kaggs and then few few a week or so or Two weeks later, they did the show in Atlanta at the Fox Theater, and they opened for Kansas. So after that show that night, Leon and um, Billy had showed up to see Gary with the express intent in talking him into putting the band back together to do a tribute tour. And uh, Charlie Brusco had already you know he'd already told him he said look we've got people we've got promoters all across the country that would would buy this thing in heartbeat in a heartbeat for arenas so gary gary was having a he was having a th- a deal like you know i don't know if i want to do it because i don't know if it's the right thing to do and i don't want to be i don't want people to think we're trying to cash in on you know ronnie's music and, the and, the you know, that whole deal, and it, it was kind of a guilt type thing. And, uh, um, I don't know, after a while we went to, uh, that, everything almost came to blows that night because Gary was dead against it. And, and Leon and Billy, you know, wanted to do it. Not only did they want to do it, they needed to do it. Right. Gary, Gary took care of his money a lot better than, than those guys did back in the day. But, um we were in Jackson hole and, and Gary said, Paul, it looks like, it looks like we may you know, d- might do some of these shows. She, he said, uh, he said, would you like to come out with us and, and, and work with us on this tour? And I'm, I'm like, well, Gary, I've never done anything like that before. And he said, well, look, just come out and you can be our security. And I said, Oh, okay, fine. Cause I, you know, I was about six, two and weighed about two forty. you know, I, I I'd be a, pretty good security guy right now i'm not though because i'm about six probably about six one (laughs) way about one (laughs) ninety. funny how that
0: works as you get older
1: (laughs) no but anyway i said yeah sure i'll do it well went out on the tribute tour and um and that's boy that's a whole nother story oh my god first time i heard that band in production rehearsals we were in, in um Oakland, California, we did our production rehearsals out there because Bill Graham was doing the first oh, three or four or five shows. Right. And uh, um, yeah, it got, I, I just couldn't believe how great the band was. But we started the tour out there. Um, I went through the whole first 32 days or the 32 shows and then We booked into 1988 and we started up and did some more tribute tour shows in 88. And, uh, then after that, it was basically, they started getting offers. So a couple of years in Gary, uh, asked me if I would be the tour manager. He said, because to tell you the truth, I think you got it together a whole lot more than, than these guys that we're hiring. And and basically what it was is it was people that the management companies were bringing out that the guys really didn't have a a rapport with, you know, and they had a rapport with me and had known me for, for, you know, 12 years or so. Sure. So, um, yeah, they made me tour manager, which, again, I had no clue in what I was doing, but, you know, I, I faked my way through it pretty good for the next eight
0: years some amazing <laughs> on-the-job training as the tour manager for <laughs> leonard skinner it was. no
1: question about that it was definitely o- ojt
0: when uh when you did some of those shows and i believe the one in charleston that i saw all those years ago uh gary did double duty on some of them because the rosington band would open the dates and then he would come out and play with skinner too and that's where right. uh, you know I, I met our friend jay johnson who i continue to to be tight with today um, oh yeah and then uh, you know, there was uh, began to be some changes in in the Leonard Skynyrd lineup as as things went on. And our mutual friend, for example, Mike Estes came in and uh, and then uh, left just a couple of years later. A- as that tour went on, um, some of the old demons within the band began to to come back. Did that make it difficult for you or more difficult as a tour manager? Because uh, I oh, think yeah. there's probably not a, a lot of understanding amongst folks who are listening right now. What that job entails? <laughs> yeah, it, it
1: made my job my job a hundred times harder. <laughs> um, um, well, you know, it's basically I, I would I'd go to go to bed on the bus, and I'd see people still up. You know, when I woke up to go to work, and I'd and I'd get a good you know six seven hours sleep on the bus, and those guys staying up doing. God knows what. Well, I God knew and I knew, too, what they were doing. But, sure. But they would, you know, they'd stay up all night long and then get to a hotel, and they may stay up the rest of the day and then come to a show that night, you know. And you know, to be honest with you, um, it never affected their performance at all. Any of that did. But it made my job hard because, well, I mean, different personalities come out. And you just have to learn which personality you're going to have to deal with today. And that was the hardest part of it.
0: And a lot of that, you know, certainly along with the chemical influences, um, have to do with with the pressures of doing that job um, and, and, frankly, just the lack of sleep and rest. You think about just a normal person, if, if they don't get sleep for a couple of days, they get real crabby and they get real grumpy. And uh, I I think there's a a misconception amongst people that are not in the music business uh, that think, well, you know, it's, it's sort of living in a big mansion and you fly out on a private jet and do a couple of dates. And, and that's kind of it. It in reality is a very physically taxing job.
1: Oh yeah. There's no question about it.
0: What would a typical Uh, day be like for you as a tour manager? uh, you know, when would you roll out and, and what would take us through a typical day when you were on the road with Leonard Skinner, for example?
1: All right. Well, every day, my day would start on the bus, uh, somewhere heading toward a hotel. Usually I'd wake up before we get to the hotels. I mean, I slept great on the bus. I really did. I mean, it just, it a matter of fact, I had a hard time sleeping once I got home, you know, but, um, uh, I, you know, I'd roll out, um, go in and, and, uh, g- talk to the people at the front desk. They would all, you know, we had, they had been instructed by me to have keys ready. Um, you know, any kind of, any kind of requests I you know, I'd go in and talk to them first before anybody got, got up and got off the bus. And then, um, I, I'd make sure that everybody had their keys, um, and they'd go to, go to the hotel go to the hotel rooms and and spend most of the day there, uh, and I'd stay in, in the in my hotel room. And at the time, there weren't any really cell phones, so I'd I'd stay on the phone advancing shows pretty much all day from the hotel. And then at uh, oh three thirty or so, we'd all get in the bus ride over, do a sound check, come back to the hotel after the sound check, and um, hang out till showtime or till about an hour before showtime to get the band over there, to do a, a meet and greet of sorts. <laughs> and that was, that was like pulling teeth sometime, getting, getting the guys to do meet and greets. But Hey, you know, it's all part of it. Sure. And back then. And back then people weren't paying $3,000 a ticket to, to have a meet and greet. I'm, I am absolutely floored that they're doing that kind of stuff now, but Hey, you know what? People are, they're just nuts. I mean, have you, have you encountered that?
0: I have seen it and it is amazing. And you know, you think about, uh, you know, fans who, who build an artist career and, you know, put the kids through college and then yep. <laughs> the artist charging thousands of dollars uh, to come back and take a quick picture yeah. and say hello. And,
1: and for 10 seconds. Right. Right. And, and and you know what? I I could I could have become a rich man because there is no telling how many tickets and passes I gave away in that 10 years. I gave away a ton. And, uh, you know, I, again, that was kind of part of my job. I loved seeing how people would react to the band. And then later on, even working with Billy Ray, it was kind of the same thing, you know, because. He 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 didn't mind doing meet and greets. That that boy he'd sit out there for two or three hours signing stuff. You That's know, right. that was his deal. But uh, I you know, I don't know. It was just uh, it it was a a different kind of job. But basically, you know, we'd get the show done. Uh I'd make sure that the bus had everything it needed. I did have help. Uh Craig Reed was kind of Kind of my assistant after a while, you know. But, uh, uh, you know, he he, Craig would be in charge of getting everybody, everybody's luggage out of their rooms and on the buses, and then we'd get back on the bus and head to the next town. And that's how the that's how the days went. Almost every day was like that, but for, you, the for months thing, at a time, the thing, you didn't know unless you had the tour book right there in front of you. You didn't know what day it was. You didn't know what town it was. I mean, literally, that's how things run together out there, and that's how it affects you. It really does.
0: Paul Abraham is our guest. We're talking about uh, his life on the road with Leonard Skinner and a bunch of other big artists, uh, and his book, The Gospel According to Abraham, available online at bookstores everywhere. And if you'd like an autographed copy, a signed copy, you can head up uh, Paul Abraham on his Facebook page. Uh, Paul did it for many, many years. Uh, were there any uh, uh security issues that came up with Leonard Skinner that that stick out in your mind i know from being around the music industry and uh, for all these years that that there are folks that uh are not playing with a full deck who fixate on famous people and yeah. some of them are reasonably harmless and others are, are not uh, and, and I have seen you handle some of the ones that are reasonably harmless with an incredible amount of grace. I'm not telling you this because you're my buddy, but I've seen you, you know, <laughs> protect some folks uh, from from bad things happening to the fan as well as the artist. But were there any serious security uh, issues that came up during the Skinner days?
1: You know, none that ever reached the band. But um, there was. It, it seemed like we were up in the Northeast one time, and there was a guy that that kept following the band around. And, you know, he, you, you'd see him everywhere. And we did a little checking on the guy and he had a, he had a record, you know, which, Hey, God knows a lot of us did. Sure. Yes. <laughs>
0: like, yeah, yeah, that ain't but, uh,
1: but, but, uh, he, uh, well, it, it seemed, and and I can't remember specifically what was going on with it, but it seemed like, Leon or somebody had had gone out with his girlfriend or something like that, and I mean, literally, this guy was—he it, 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 was stalking, and we said that he was stalking the band, but basically, I believe that he was stalking Leon. Um, and and you know, other than that, like I said, none of this none of this stuff ever reached the band that much because we we could tend to to get it all taken care of before anything like that would happen. Nowadays, you know, I I don't know, man, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know for sure that I would want to be in that, in in that business today because things are so crazy and people have just absolutely gone off the deep end.
0: I remember uh, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Abraham is our guest today. You know, the next artist that, that you had a really long run with was, was Billy Ray Cyrus. And, Billy Ray came to play a theater in my hometown back in West Virginia. It's a beautiful little theater of about twelve hundred people um and he sold it out of course and and my mother was still living at that time, so I flew back in to do that show so that I could introduce my mom to Billy Ray. She was a huge fan. Didn't matter anything that I'd done in my career. The fact that, that Billy and I knew each other from before he got signed was was always golden to her. And, and you know, oh, he yeah. was great with it. When he did the TV show Doc, he called my mom when she was in the hospital and on oh, and on. But, uh, but anyway, you know, as it generally is before those concerts, there's no time really to chat. And I did the quick meet and greet and, and introduced the two of them. And, and Billy said, hey, after the show, come out to – to the bus and we'll talk and by the time i got done with my stuff and got my mother back to her house and 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 got back down there he was ready to pull out and it was just him and his boy and and the bus driver and he said "Well, hop on and ride with us for a while and we'll catch up so i rode down the road for a while and i said uh, eventually you know i've i've got to figure out a way to get back to <laughs> to get back to logan um and uh and he said no problem He told the driver, he said, you know, pull over here, uh, because I had a a friend who lived about halfway between the two towns. He said, pull over here. There's always a lady that follows us everywhere we go. She's behind the bus, and she will drive you to your friend's house. And I said, are are you nuts? Uh, Yes, that's exactly right. (laughs) And and I said, you you want me to get in the car with this woman? Oh, she's harmless. She just follows us everywhere. And sure enough. The you know the bus driver went back worked it out and lady could not have been nicer dropped me off at my friend's house up a holler in West Virginia and when I exactly. knocked on his door at two in the morning he said you you Burke Allen have the strangest life of anyone I know and
1: man that is funny I, and I remember that I I, I really do uh, what what theater was it it was right there in um, it was
0: right downtown it was called when, the Coalfield Jamboree.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. In
0: Logan, West Virginia, and yeah, uh, yeah, yes. And yes. so, uh, so let let's talk about changing from Leonard Skinner to to Billy Ray Cyrus. You did a bunch of big artists in between, you know, Marshall Tucker and Thirty Eight Special and all that. But yeah. but Billy Ray was your your next uh, extended run, who you're with for a long time. Uh, tell me about how it all ended for you and Leonard Skinner, and then how. You began to represent this guy, who for a while there was the unquestionably the biggest artist in country music.
1: Yeah, I tell you what. Um, Toward the end with Skinner, I I mean, I I would literally living in the Rocky Mountains with um, nobody around me, and I'm I'm starting to advance shows, you know, and 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 the stress level was palpable. I mean, you could feel it from the very first day that I started advancing a, a tour. And it, it just got to the point where, you know, I couldn't sleep at night. I was, you know, I was worried that, that something bad was going to happen. And, you know, I just, I, I don't know, it was just a whole bunch of different things that were going on. um, And uh, I, I had I had uh, Gary, I think Gary and Johnny had been listening to somebody else and and they decided that maybe it was time for me to to go, which to be real honest with you was okay with me, you know, at the time. Right. Um, And then, and I really and truly, I had, I had decided at that point in time that I was, I probably wasn't going to work in the music business anymore. I've, I've, the nine months after um, after I worked with uh, Skinner, I went to work with Michael Peterson for the remainder of 1998, I believe. And um, I really enjoyed working with this guy. He was he was a great guy, great artist, had some wonderful songs. Uh, but then after that, I went home and I just got to the point where I, you know, I. My, I talked with my wife about it. I said, look, I'm just going to find another job and not, you know, not leave here anymore. And she said, that would be fine with me. Well, anyway, um, Ed King called me and, and Ed, God rest his soul. You know, he always looked out for me and I looked out for him too, but, um, he called me and he said, look, uh, Billy Ray Cyrus is looking for a tour manager. Are you interested? And I said, well, yeah, you know. and I'd always heard how great Billy Ray was to work with. Uh, we had met him one time when we were in the studio there in, in, in Nashville and just a super nice guy. And I, that very same day, I met his band, right. Um, uh, slide Dog. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, I went out to Billy's house to the farm, and I sat down with him and and probably you know talked to him for about an hour. And he he said, "You want the job?" I said, "Yeah, sure." And he said, "He said you're hired." And and he said, "Get in touch with my business manager. He'll discuss your retainer and all that kind of stuff." Well, which is unheard of. But don't many people get retainers in the music business? Well, well, I did. Right. And and, uh, he took real good care of me the whole time I worked for him. But uh, I I did. I stayed with him for close to 11 years. Um, He was just, I mean, the easiest person in the world to work with. He really was. I mean, he was doing doc. He would fly in, do a show, fly back out. And, you know, and we'd jump on the bus and, and Billy Ray would say, said, I'll see y'all in the, you know, wherever you want to, wherever we play next. And it's so, okay, that's it. So, um, it was, man, just working for him. And I had, I had free reign to, to, to do things like instead of taking the band and having them hang out in a parking, in a, in a truck stop parking lot for two or three days, like their, their other tour manager had done, um, they, I'd take them to a national park, you know, and and we'd we'd get we'd get rooms and we'd rent a couple of vans or whatever, and we'd go out and, and see stuff, you know. That's that's what we did. And these are just some of the best old country West Virginia folks and and Kentucky folks that you'll ever want to meet. I mean, they're just fine, fine people, and I'm still in touch with them to this day.
0: Yeah, you know, it was a uh, a real treat to know him before he got signed back there. And I remember I actually did his very first radio interview he'd ever done. He had a little 45 with uh, with his band, uh, and they were the players before they were Sly Dog. And uh, we gave away his, – his mom had a litter of kittens, and we gave away kittens on there. We didn't have any records giveaway, give away, so we gave away kittens on the air. Uh, I love it. And uh, was there the night he got signed at the ragtime, the old Ragtime Lounge there in Huntington, and And it was neat to stay in touch with him and those guys down through the years because at that time, my radio career took me all over the country. And so every time I would run into Billy, and and by extension you, I was in a different city, and it would always throw him off. You know, it would be the Charleston Sternwheel Regatta the first time in front of 100,000 people, and that made sort of sense because it was close. And the next time, it was in Savannah, Georgia, where I was doing mornings or – you know in las vegas when i was a program director for cbs or here in yeah. washington dc we did a show over in frederick maryland i remember uh, congressman oh, yeah. ray hall and his family was there that day
1: yeah that's the that rains so damn much that's right
0: that's exactly yeah. right or you know in 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 a lot of those cities you know i did uh, top 40 radio back then and and Billy would always ask me to introduce the show, which to, to no end, and, and that said a little something about his loyalty to people, it would always tick off the country radio station in that market, whatever it was. You know, why yeah. is this top 40 guy introducing you? And, and uh, he didn't care because <coughs> we were buddies. Um, his his uh, production manager, sound guy, John Griffiths, and I continue to work together, and when I told John we were going to talk today, he told me to ask you if, if I could borrow your knife and he said that there will be a story there so i i want to hear that story oh
1: my god oh my lord um i forget where we were at uh but my grandson had we and see john he's got such a great memory but i, I can't i can't remember the specifics of it but my grandson somebody had had he and he's a guy who was six maybe maybe five or six years old he, he came up to me, and he said, so-and-so said something to him, and can I borrow your knife? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh, my God, what in the world? But, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, John, man, I tell you what, you you just can't find a better person than that.
0: And you're right. They are, are good guys. And, and I wonder, as you look back on this, this career of, of spending time in different cities and doing – arguably thousands of shows with these different artists. Are there one or two uh, shows or memories that stand out where where you go, I cannot believe I am here witnessing this thing, this event, yeah. whatever it is. Are there a couple that float to the top of all that stuff?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm going to say almost every show on the tribute tour. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it was just overwhelming sometimes. I think the 10th anniversary of the plane crash in Birmingham, Alabama, stands out. Um, You know, I think I'm just trying to think of some that and I guess being in uh, uh, being at uh, fanfare. You know, being in the middle of uh, a depth, whatever they call that coliseum up there now, and and having having it completely full, and having Billy Gray out there just rocking rocking them down, man. Sure. That that place. Um, I think being in in some of the California venues like uh, Universal Amphitheater and all the all the big big wig people that have to kind of go through me to get to the band. You know, here I have, uh, uh the president of MCA and, uh, then Bill Graham and Carlos Santana showed up and, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> well, these people, you know, they're, they're, they're wanting my permission to get back there and, and talk to these guys, you know, but mm-hmm. Hey, I, you know, I guess that more than anything, I, I, I've I've never been one one that was totally overwhelmed with a situation. Um, there were some times when we we would go to Europe that uh, that the Skinner boys they would overwhelm me because it seemed <laughs> like every it seemed like every time we'd get out of the country, they'd pick that time to really pull a good one, you know. But. Um, Billy Ray was just opposite. My God. I mean, I, I'd never had to worry about him.
0: Yeah. It sounds like the, uh, the Skinner guys may have been in a state of arrested development there, uh, with, with you minding yeah. the store quite a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I did have a, a, a question that came in via email when we talked about, uh, talking with you on the podcast today. And it's from a young lady, uh, in Utah, uh, who asked about, uh, Billy's daughter, Miley. And I remember, yep. you know, many times down through the years, uh, including, I remember the, the weekend we just talked about John Griffiths. John got married uh, while I was running the radio station in Las Vegas. And I think Billy was doing some dates at the Orleans that weekend and, and you know, right. did the wedding and all that. I remember uh, Miley coming out to dinner at, at a restaurant that we were at that Steven Spielberg home with with, uh, with her mom and chasing my, uh, my stepson around under the table when she was little. And another show when I got here to D.C. that you guys did over at Six Flags and and she was sort of kicking her legs off the edge of the the production uh, vehicle. So the, uh, this uh, this listener wants to know if you had any inkling, you know, watching that little girl grow up and and him pulling her out on stage, if you had any inkling that she would become the star that she is today?
1: Well, well, no, not the star she is today, but I knew dang well she was going to be uh, some something. Oh, there's no question about it. I mean like you said, when she when when Billy pulled her out on the stage and that little girl grab a microphone when she's five years old and sing it you know uh pitch perfect, you know, uh, not a bit bashful yeah. oh yeah, in front of all
0: those people that did, didn't affect oh, yeah.
1: her yeah, yeah, I mean you know, and yeah, I knew it I mean I, I had no doubt about it. I knew she was gonna be something big and then when they started uh when when Tish started uh taking her to California to do the auditions for Hannah Montana. I mean, she was auditioning for a, a, a small part and she got the big part and took her daddy along with her, you know? Right. Uh, and, and after that, I mean, it just, it, I, and, and I had heard her music. I mean, I, I was out there one time when, uh, when, uh, after ready, set, don't go had been written. Yes. And she wanted to play the demo for me. And, and, uh, you know, she, Molly was always the sweetest little girl you'll ever want to know. And she and I had a secret handshake and, and we always, you know, <laughs> every time I would see her, she'd come running up to me and she would secret handshake. And I'd, I'd have to remember it with my old feeble mind, but, uh, I'd get through it usually. But, um, uh, yeah, Miley. I mean, I, I knew she was going to be big. I had no doubt in my mind if they all they had to do was put her out there. And now Noah's out there. Noah's out there making pretty dang good music, too.
0: Yeah, yeah, he is. And, you know, it started with Metro Station. and, and Yeah. Um, when, when Billy had that enormous comeback in 2019 with Old Town Road, uh, and you mm-hmm. mentioned ready set uh, don't go which was you know a decade before that which again was a huge song for him so the guy wound up having massive hits in three different decades i wonder what what went through your mind when when that song came out it was certainly very controversial at least in country radio oh it doesn't fit here it doesn't belong and and boy you know young people just went right around country radio and made it without question the biggest song of 2019 and you know, put Billy back on the, on the map and on the on the road again. Uh, what were your thoughts when you saw that happen?
1: I'll tell you exactly. Me and Terry Shelton, were you, you know Terry. T-Bone. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. We were talking on the phone, and he said, well, Paul, old Billy Ray done reinvented himself again, you know. <laughs> and basically, that's what he has done through his whole career. He 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 rein he reinvents himself about once every two or three years, and he has these TV shows. I mean, and people want him for for MC spots, and and then boy, but when this thing came out, and they were what 20, How many weeks on Billboard?
0: I think it was seventeen or eighteen weeks at number one. It, I mean, not incredible. just on the chart at number
1: one. Yeah, incredible. You know, and I'm like. Yeah, but Terry and I, we always get a kick out of that because basically, you know, wonder what he's going to do next. <laughs> you know, And the only thing that I hate worse than anything in the world is that those guys that brought him through those early days with him, Terry, Michael Joe, um, uh, Corky. Steve French. Barton, uh, Steve French, all those guys, you know, all they can do is sit on the sidelines now, and that to me that's sad because I mean they had they, they were a big part of that. Sly dog, Sly dog, probably I mean with a bunch of middle aged ladies, <laughs> they're, they're huge. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think you're right, and, and uh, a good a good bunch of guys. So, oh my god, yeah. What, uh, they, I mean, I I, what...
1: I describe them as as the best friends I've ever had.
0: What uh what happens now for you, Paul? You've written the book, you, you no longer are, you know, on an airplane or on a tour bus 200, 250 days a year. You settle back into into the Delta where you grew up. You know, what, what happens next for Paul Abraham?
1: Well, I've I've settled back into the Delta for the time being. Um I love it here. I mean, you gotta understand that th- there's not much here anymore. I mean, it it's basically um The towns are pretty raggedy. Uh, The town I'm living in now is is awesome, Cleveland. But, uh, you know, like the little town, I I grew up in Leland and Greenville, which, you know, is a a river town that we used to go party in all the time. Well, you can't go there anymore because it's not safe. And um, I'm probably, well, as soon as I've got, I've got one more little deal to do with the doctors here. I've got to have a PET scan just to make sure that I'm all clean and everything. And, uh, then I'm, I'm going back to Colorado. Um, I have a friend out there. She and I, uh, she's a big Skinner fan as a matter of fact. Um, we took a trip a year and a half ago to, uh, she's got a, a RV and we took our dogs, which numbered four <laughs> <laughs> and two human beings. And we left Colorado and we headed West. We went to, um, uh, Oregon coast, went up through, uh Washington, state of Washington in the British Columbia, uh, Yukon territory and all the way to, to Alaska and back and, um, she and I are just super good friends and she's got she's got a whole bunch of room to, to roam out there and I, I, I really it's calling me back and, and I'm a single man now and I'm I'm thinking that's where I'll be.
0: Sounds like that wanderlust is still there. It's been in your blood all those years and now you're just tour oh, managing no some question. dogs.
1: No question about it. I mean I I I long to travel. I really do. I mean, that was the part of doing that trip with her that really made me decide that I wanted to to do a whole lot more of it. But I mean, we're, we're planning right now a trip to the Southwest. Um, I don't care to go back out of the country anymore to tell you the truth. There's so much to see here. I mean, you know, I just soon stay in the, inside the U S but, uh, yeah, we're we're probably going to do a, a, a trip through some of the national parks down in in the south.
0: There's a great line in the in the movie almost famous and we'll wrap up here with Paul Abraham in his book The Gospel According to Abraham, but that reminds me an awful lot of you where the the young man who's the central character turns to Kate Hudson's character and he says uh, as they're riding down the road on a tour bus, you know, I've I've got school, I've got to go home and Kate Hudson looks mm-hmm. at him and and, and looks out the window of the tour bus and said, you are home. And I think uh, for you, being on the road is home.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guarantee it is. I mean, that's uh, that's wonderful. I, and I love that movie, too.
0: Paul Abraham's The Gospel, according to Abraham, from Delta Boy to Tour Manager is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. And if you'd like an autographed copy from Paul, you can head over to visit him on Facebook, and he will uh, sign one and put it in the mail to you. It's been great talking to you, Paul. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Excellent, Burke. And good good talking to you again, and I hope to see you again.
0: When all this is over, we will make it happen. That's Paul Abraham, and you've been listening to the Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, and more. Subscribe, and thank you to our sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make it a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.